Hello, and welcome to Fresh Off the Vine. I'm Karen Coyne. This episode is part two of my conversation with estate planning attorney, Ann Rotz. In the first half, we discussed planning considerations for parents of young children and young adult children. In this episode, we'll pick up where we left off and touch on considerations for parents of children with special needs. Plus, we'll touch on trusts, pets, and your digital assets. Okay, so we've talked about considerations for parents of minor children, considerations for parents of children 18 and older, considerations for single parents. We want to make sure we also talked about considerations for parents of children with special needs or disabilities. I'm glad that you mentioned that earlier because that is something that absolutely is important to address in planning. Absolutely. And that would be no matter how old the child with the special need or disability is, there are ways that you can leave assets to a child who has qualified for federal disability without disqualifying them from continuing to receive disability benefits. You're talking about like a special needs trust? Correct. So you would be able to either form and fund that trust during your lifetime if you so choose, or you can have it written into your will so that it's formed and funded at the time of your death. Mm -hmm. If an individual is receiving certain federal disability benefits, they have to be below certain income and asset thresholds. So you don't want them inheriting a chunk of money that can disqualify them. Not just because it means that they lose that income, But for a lot of individuals, that's how they get their insurance coverage. So you don't want to disqualify them from their health insurance. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that they don't receive the property outright. Right. And that the trust is written in such a way as it does not disqualify them from disability benefits. And again, that's regardless of how old they are, whether they are 5 or 45 you need to have the same protections in place to ensure that they continue to get their disability coverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important distinction. And then some of the things that we've talked about would would be also especially important to continue, you know, whereas if you have, you know, healthy children at a certain point, right, they're 18 or over, maybe the guardian becomes less important right now that they're at some point they're independent, they're living on their own, but there's other considerations if you have a child with special needs in addition to the financial planning that you're talking about, you know, you still need to really kind of think about who is going to help care for them on a day-to-day basis if I'm not here. Correct. Who's the appropriate person to take over caring for them? Sometimes that might be a sibling. Sometimes it may not be. And again, that's a decision that you want to be making while you're healthy and able to make the choice based on what's going to be best for your child. There are some children who are never going to be able to live independently. And so you need to make sure that you've covered all your bases and taken care of them for as long as they may live. And what we're seeing is because of advances in medicine that lots of individuals are living longer. And so we need to plan and assume that your child with special needs may outlive you and you need to make sure that you have taken care of them. Right. Yeah. That's such an important planning consideration. So, I mean, probably more than some of these things that we talked about as to why, why it's so important to continually review your plan. It's especially important if you have a special needs situation. 
Correct. And I recommend to any client that I work with, but especially with younger individuals, that you pull out your estate planning documents after you've done them every five years or anytime there's a major life event that impacts someone named in the document. And you get them out and you read through them. And if they still do what you want them to do, if they're still a good fit, then you just put them away. If they're not a good fit, then you have them altered so that they do work. Right. Lots changes in life. And so while these documents never expire once you do them, you want to make sure that they continue to fit the circumstance. Absolutely. And we can't predict all of the circumstances that will come to be when we write the documents. Yes. So you just periodically look at them, check in, make sure they're still what you want them to be. And if they are, that's great. You don't have to do a thing. And if they're not, then you only need to modify those documents that no longer work and only those provisions that aren't working. Right. But periodically check in because just like you have your regular check-ins with your physician, you know, your financial advisor, you do need to check in and review those documents. All right. So let's talk about those other kids that people might have. And I'm talking about pets. I actually, I can think of a couple clients who, you know, they don't have children, children, but their pets are their children. And so they have made some provisions for those pets because, you know, they have like a small farm, basically, a menagerie of pets. And who is going to care for these pets? Where are they going to go after they pass? What has your experience been in that area? So lots of families treat pets differently. So for example, we have two dogs in our household who are very much a part of our family. So in our wills, they are addressed specifically as to who's going to care for them. And in our circumstance, the individual who is appointed as guardian of our son is not the best person to also take care of the dogs. Uh So we have separate provisions for what happens to the human child, what happens to the canine (laughs) child. And most states now recognize pet trusts, (laughs) which means that you can leave assets to be used to care for those trusts, or those pets. So all of us who have pets know they can be expensive. You need to feed them. They need to go to the vet. As they get older, just like us, they might require more medical care. And you may not want to burden the individual who's going to take them with that, those financial hardships. So you can leave assets in trust for the benefit of the pet if you choose to. Some people also will just leave a cash gift outright to that person. So leave them a chunk of money and trust that they're going to use that for the benefit of the pet. Makes sense. Yes. I don't have pets, but I hear from clients all the time about how expensive those visits are, especially like you said, the aging, the aging animals. It's so sad. Correct. And as best I know, all 50 states continue to treat animals as tangible personal property. That means if you don't specifically address them in your will, then they either get dealt with in the provision that deals with your tangible personal property or the provision that deals with your residuary estate. So the people who are getting your assets may not be the people who are best suited to raise your pets. So Um, spell it out. Yes, I would always advise that. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, my pet has a shorter lifespan than I do. Absolutely. And so 
that's why we would write the provision so that it encompasses any future pets. Mm. So I have two dogs. My will right now provides what happens to those two dogs, but also has a catch-all that says, or any other pet I may have. And then again, if that's something that I feel strongly enough about in the future that needs to change, we just change that provision. Mm-hmm. But then you have some flexibility built in, which is always a good part of a good estate plan. Correct. So speaking of trusts, we didn't touch on this too much, but earlier when we did talk about considerations for parents of minor children and even those that are 18 or over, right? What happens if I'm eight years old, my parents pass away and I inherit $500,000 or a million dollars or more even, or less, regardless, right? I'm, I'm nine, 10 years old, or even if I'm 18 or 20, I might not be in a position to either legally make those decisions, or I might be in a position legally, but not, you know, with enough life experience to make good decisions. And so this is where we see trusts come into play for parents with young children. In my experience, people get kind of just the word trust kind of throws up a roadblock, right? (laughs) And I think it's just this very abstract concept where people think, oh, trust, that's for the really wealthy and, you know, that's tax planning and tax evasion. (laughs) And it's really not necessarily those things, right? It's just, it's a vehicle that kind of you're able to sculpt in, in a number of different ways. Where, where do you start this conversation with, with parents and children in these situations that we were just describing? So we start with the fact that if your child is under 18, they legally cannot own the property. So someone needs to manage it for them. And that someone should be someone that you appoint as trustee rather that, than someone that a court appoints as guardian after your death. And just like when we were talking about earlier, if someone gets appointed as guardian for you because you've become incapacitated, they have to make annual court filings. Likewise, if you haven't set up a trust for your child and appointed a trustee, a guardian will have to be put into place. And that guardian is going to have court reporting requirements. And the money is only going to be spent according to how the law says, Mm. not according to how you wanted it to be spent. And that could be drastically different than how you wanted your assets to benefit your child. So by putting a trust into the provisions of your will, you are able to ensure as best you can that life continues for your child in the manner in which you want it to. Mm -hmm. So you're putting a decision maker in place who hopefully is in line with how you spend money on your child. We all know there's a huge difference in how all of us choose to spend money on our children. (laughs) So for your trustee, I think that's one of the most important attributes is do they understand what you think is important and what how you view your role as a financial guardian of your child and are they going to abide by that? And the trust, it merely spells out how you would spend money on your child if you were alive and able to do so. So for most parents, that means providing for their health, education, maintenance, and support. And you can spell out a little more specifically what that means. So maybe for education, it is your plan to pay for undergraduate 100%. Okay. You can spell that out in the trust. 
either in a way that's legally binding or in a way that merely gives your trustee instruction. Right. For other families, that's either not what they choose to do or that's not feasible. And so educational expenses could mean things more like school supplies okay. and maybe books when they're in college if they choose to go to college. So you want to have a good deal of flexibility built in. Yeah. Because you never know what's going to be needed. And while I think my two-year-old is a genius and probably (laughs) destined for college, (laughs) it may turn out that's not what he wants. Right. What if he just wants to be an entrepreneur, for example, and could use that money to start a business? Correct. You want your trust to have that flexibility so that your trustee can make the choices just like you would make the choices. Maybe Henry doesn't choose to go to college and instead we help him buy an existing business with the money we would have spent on him going to college. Right. Or maybe we help him with a down payment on a house. You don't know exactly how all of that's going to play out. So you want your trust to have some flexibility. And then you also want your trust to have some sort of drop dead date. Mm. So you're providing for your child And I think all of us have in our minds some rough idea of if all things go to plan, at some point our child is independent of us. We're not paying for things anymore. (laughs) That's the idea. Right. (laughs) So if that comes to fruition, when are you going to stop writing those checks? And, And that's when we start working with, okay, when's your trust going to end? Like I mentioned earlier, those under 25 probably aren't going to be responsible enough to handle a large chunk of assets. Right. So I think don't even create that temptation. Keep assets in trust until a child's 25. And then you can decide, do they get everything all at one time? Everything that hasn't already been spent. Because remember, your trustee can spend for health, education, maintenance, and support throughout the life of the trust. Right. But then they can also just make large or small distributions out to your child at certain ages or upon certain conditions. If that's how the trust is written. Correct. Mm -hmm. So again, it's up to what you want. And a lot of people tend to do two or three distributions. Yes. Perhaps starting when a child's 25 and every five years for a little bit or 25 and 30. And sometimes the portion that's given at 25 is smaller Mm. than the portion that they end up getting later. Because again, they're 25. Yes. And for those of us who went to graduate school at 25, maybe we were still in school. Again, just providing some sort of flexibility. And your trust should also provide your trustee with the, the discretion to never make those outright distributions if your child is unable to manage those assets. Mm, That's really important. So so again, we can't predict what will come to pass. So perhaps at the age of 25, your child, because of some sort of accident, is not able to manage assets and you want them to stay in trust. So you make sure your trustee has the ability to make that decision. Mm. Would that also come into play if, you know, again, God forbid, someone has an addiction? Yes, an addiction of any kind. So alcohol, drug, gambling, whatever, your trustee would have the ability to say, no, I'm sorry, I'll continue to support you in these ways, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to write you a check for $100,000. So you want to make sure that that is built in for your trustee. 
That's so important. You know, a lot of times people will ask me when I'm, we're having the conversation and I'm recommending that they update their estate planning documents because I find out they maybe don't have a trust that addresses these very items. And they'll say, well, you know, why can't I just do that in a will? Or why can't I just go online and do that by myself? And this is why, right? This is a lot of complex complexity that I just don't feel confident that a DIY template is going to address. Correct. Especially for those of us who are younger, because we hope we have so many years to live, which means there are so many years in which circumstances can change. Mm -hmm. So you want a will that has enough flexibility to meet those circumstances if you haven't changed it. And the other thing is that the law regarding wills and trusts remains extremely archaic. So while there are areas of the law that you probably can work yourself through just as well as anyone else, this is not one of those areas, in my opinion. And that's not just a self-serving opinion. (laughs) There are certain terms that we use in everyday life that mean something different in the world of wills. And so you want to make sure you're working with someone that doesn't just have a law degree, but who does primarily estate planning. Oh my gosh, yes, a thousand percent. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's a thousand percent true. And I have seen it firsthand and I'm sure you've seen it firsthand when I see a client's documents that were prepared by a legal professional and perhaps a competent legal professional, but not a competent estate planning professional. And that is an important distinction. Yes, it's very important in this area of law. There's lots of overlap in many areas of law, but this is one that in large part, stands alone. I have seen just in the 15 years that I have practiced, the tax laws that impact estate planning to have changed drastically. So what was so vital to focus on when I first started practicing, now you don't focus on at all because it doesn't really matter. You're right. Absolutely. But there are different implications that you really need to be taking into consideration. And again, even if you have no assets, and so there's nothing that can pay any taxes. You still want to make sure that someone understands the difference between a guardian of person and guardian of property and what do they do and making sure that you understand the different powers and authorities that your financial agent can and should have, that your medical agent can and should have, and that you're dealing with things that are ever changing. You and I talked briefly before we started recording regarding digital assets. Mm -hmm. And for lots of individuals, digital assets are going to become increasingly important. And the law is woefully behind in addressing those. That's exactly what I was thinking when you talked about archaic. And I thought, well, gosh, when I got into this business, when you got into the business, like you said, maybe the focus was tax planning and digital assets wasn't even a convention, wasn't even a, was a non, it doesn't even exist. Correct. And now, like to your point, you could have a negative net worth, but you still have assets in the digital realm. Correct. And whether we want them to or not, those assets then become our legacy. And so you want to have someone who's able to manage them. And because of the way that laws are written, the individual who's serving as your personal representative or your executor or your financial agent does not have legal access to your digital assets just through being appointed as agent, 
personal representative, or executor. There are specific exceptions when it comes to digital assets. So you might think, hey, I'm just going to write down all of my usernames and passwords. Okay. Yes, I've heard that before. And you need to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> but then you also need to specifically give that power in your documents, in your estate planning documents. And for some of us, we might want to give that power to someone other than the person who's serving as personal representative or executor. Right. Or financial agent. So that they can sift through information and decide what gets destroyed, what gets shared. For a lot of individuals our age and younger, your digital assets are basically like your diary. So there may be things in there you don't want resurfacing right. after you've died. And um, then the way I understand it is certain institutions, so say like Facebook might have one set of rules and you know, Spotify or iTunes might have a different set of rules as to who can go in and shut that account down or correct. take next uh, steps. Correct. So it's about who has authority to access that. And that's all written in those terms and conditions that we all just click on. And is it that why those other documents don't come into play is because those agreements with those institutions supersede the powers that might be you know, I believe it is a combination of the agreements and federal law. Huh. And so the law allows you to give someone authority to handle, handle your digital assets, but it has to be specifically addressed. So you have to expressly state in your document that you're giving so-and-so the authority to handle your digital assets. And I don't think any of us have the time or the desire to sift through all of the terms and conditions for all of the digital oh things gosh. that we do. Right. You just need to be aware that that's something that you should probably be addressing. So for someone that's maybe listening and is thinking, okay, that's it. Anne and Karen, you finally <laughs> inspired me. I'm going to start making a list of all the things I need to think about. So I need to think about a guardian who is going to be a guardian for my child in the event that I pass away or I'm incapacitated? And then who's going to be the backup to that person? And then maybe even a backup to the backup. And then I need to think about who would I want to direct my financial affairs? And then again, a backup. Who would I want to have medical power of attorney? And again, a backup. Who would I want possibly to be a trustee if that is an issue that comes into play? Who would I want to handle my digital assets? Does that cover everything? Then if you have pets, who do you want taking care of your pets? Yes. You know, and then of course, you, you, no matter what your age, you want to be thinking about are there specific items of property that you own, whether they're valuable or not, that you want to make sure go to a certain individual? And do you feel strongly enough about that, that it should be included in your will? Perhaps it is a ring that has always been passed down to the oldest female in your mother's family. And so you want to make sure that tradition continues. So there are things like that that you may want to be addressing as well. And I think a lot of people, they hear a list like this and they just think, no way. <laughs> Important things to keep in mind are you want to think about what makes most sense in the next five years. Yes. We had lunch a couple weeks ago and you mentioned that and I thought that was great advice. Yeah. So you're not trying to predict forever. Start with what makes sense in the next five years and appoint those individuals. And then, like we said, because Murphy's Law of state, estate Planning applies, you're never going to need the documents. <laughs> you can revise them right. 
after that five years passes if circumstance change. And you just want to make sure that you're working with all of your advisors together so that if I'm writing your estate planning documents, it's important that I know where you have all of your assets. Mm -hmm. Because while your will says where you want all of your probate property to go, it doesn't govern documents that have, or excuse me, it doesn't govern assets that have beneficiary designations. Right. So if I know a client is working with you, I assume they probably have accounts that have beneficiary designations. Mm -hmm. And so then I can speak with them, but also circle around with you and make sure that any changes that need to be made to beneficiary designations actually get made so that the estate plan as we formulated it works overall, yes. not just piecemeal. And exactly. It's so important that after someone does create their documents. So hopefully you're going to listen today, right? You're going to go back, possibly either create or update your documents. And then after you've done that, woohoo, congratulate yourself, pat yourself on the back because you got around to it. But then please, please, please let your advisor know. I mean, in a lot of cases, we know when our clients are doing estate planning, a lot of times we referred them to the estate planning attorney and said, you know, you need to get this done. So we're circling back with them, but sometimes they go off and do it on their own, or sometimes they might not have an, an advisor, or they might not have an advisor who's in the loop that has their, you know, arms wrapped around it. So absolutely, you know, you need to know that once you do create those documents, it's so important to circle back to those institutions, like you just said, Anne, and update. Otherwise, you could potentially have done a lot of planning for nothing. Correct. I hate when I see that. <laughs> Oh my. So we covered a lot of ground today. Uh, is there anything that we missed? <laughs> I think we've hit everything with a, a broad brush when it comes to the kind of younger families, however those families are, are structured. And certainly whether you are a family that has one parent or two parents, or you're a family that has two different households, you want to make sure that you've done your estate planning and make sure things that are covered for your children. And if you don't have children, but you're young, you want to make sure things are taken care of so that if something catastrophic and unexpected happens to you, that you've not made life more difficult that for those individuals who, who would be taking care of you. Especially think if that's your parent who has to take care of you after a car accident you don't want them to have to do these additional things. Mm -hmm. So I see it as something that you're doing certainly for your own peace of mind, but also to know that you have done everything that you possibly can to protect those around you from not necessarily losing assets or even paying taxes that they wouldn't otherwise have to pay, but making sure that they don't have to go through extra hardship and spend extra time and extra money doing things that you could have taken care of so they could focus on caring for you. Absolutely. Well, that's all great advice, Anne. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. I know we can't cheers because you're expecting. So. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a faux cheers. And yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Opinions expressed are those of Karen Coyne and not those of Raymond James Financial Services or Raymond James. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA CIPIC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Incorporated. Karen Coyne, Strategic Wealth Advisor, located at 12920 Connemar Drive, Suite 202, Hagerstown, Maryland, 21742. 
301-739-7002. Raymond James is not affiliated with Ann Rotz or Rotz Law Offices, LLC. Any opinions are those of Ann Rotz and not necessarily those of Raymond James. This podcast is meant to be informational. For legal advice, please consult your attorney.